Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. I've said this before, but I will say it probably many times again. Thank you as a group that is so patient with me as a young and inexperienced pastor. Yeah, some of you are okay with that. Some of you are not. Uh, but thank you for your patience with me, constantly working and listening to me work through being a first-time preacher. Um, we are delving now into Joshua. We've done it for the past couple of weeks, but we are starting now to really get into the flow of narrative. Whereas before, in the past couple times, you've seen James, you've seen propositional literature, you've seen it short, staccato, lots of information condensed into short sentences. And now we get to these rolling passages of all kinds of stuff going on through a narrative. The task of interpretation is very different when we're working through a narrative than it is when we're dealing with these little nuggets of truth over and over again from James. James tells us, this is true about God, don't do this do this. This is a ramification for it. This is why you should do that. Like, it's very straightforward. But when we're moving into narrative, these big sections, we're getting a big story. And to take one or two verses and pluck them out is a little bit irresponsible because we're not getting the context of that. We don't understand what they're trying to get to just by grabbing one or two. And that's by, just so you understand, verse by verse exposition of the scriptures does not mean that we just each time go verse and then the next verse and the next verse. When we talk about expository preaching, what we want to do is make sure we understand what the author is trying to do through his writing. So today, we'll go through the entire chapter two. We've already spent three weeks on chapter one, but today we're going to go through all of chapter two. That's because it's one unit. It's one whole story plopped down in chapter 2 for us. So thank you for working with me and allowing me to work through this, because I'm still learning how to preach narrative as well. We love stories, though. The good thing about this isn't that we're just dropped into this and we don't know what to do about it. We love stories. We're made to know good stories. We, We tell them to our children. We tell them to each other. We can help situate ourselves in a situation when someone gives us the background leading up to where we're at. A lot of our history helps us understand where we came from, and it gives us the story of why the things that we're dealing with now matter. Communicating by means of a story gives us truth in a very different way from these propositions that just drop it, do this, don't do that, this is who God is. We're invited to come along with the reader, we are the reader, and come along with different characters and understand their emotional highs and their lows, and when big Opportunities come up for them to make a big mistake and they fall and we fall with them and we hurt. And as John Bunyan says in in talking about the Pilgrim's Progress, stories and analogies help us. They stick like a burr. They just can't get away from us. We remember all these different parts of the story. And so when we come to this, it wasn't an accident that God had Joshua put this down as what it was, a story, a narrative. Some of us are avid readers. We simply love to enjoy good stories or even movies. We can enjoy the the movie. We enjoy the storyline of what's going on. We can't help it. We We just love a good story. Now, a good storyteller, though, one that's prudent and wise, 
will use stories for his purposes. Now, whether they're good purposes or not, a smart person will understand that story is used for something bigger, and that's to communicate something. Whether the point is maybe several different points and it's complex, or perhaps a huge story is about one main thing. A good communicator will take that story and use it to display what he's trying to get his audience to understand or believe, or he's trying to convince them of something. The task in front of us is to look at Joshua 2, this next chapter in our story. Follow along, enjoy it for the story that it is, but then also not to just be done with it, but to understand why Joshua would include this story, all of chapter 2, in his big picture of Joshua. What we're going to do is begin with a word of prayer. Uh, And then we'll tell the story. And as we do, we desire to enjoy this little piece of history. But we're far more desirous that we would understand why it's important, why it matters for us, 2019, Cornerstone, the people who live here in Virginia Beach and the surrounding areas. So we're going to pray that God would do this and he would warm our hearts to understand his goodness and our need for him. This is certainly the work of the Holy Spirit. And so let us pray for a moment for that warming. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. We declare our dependence on you. We realize that we are just creatures. We need your holy work this morning of illumination. We need you in every way. We need to see ourselves properly and repent. We need to see you properly and rejoice in who you are. Father, you alone are the one that can make blind men see. You are both the maker of men, but you're also the redeemer. Lord, when your disciples, they asked about the blind man, whose fault it was, it was his fault or was his parents' fault that he was blind, it was you that looked at him and said, it wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin, it was so that the power of God would be seen in him. Lord, we ask that you would open blind eyes today. Would you do so for the sake of showing the power of God to your people and to the world? We ask that you would teach us to receive this food, your word, with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for this precious gift of your holy word. Thank you for Christ, who is our true manna, our true nourishment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The people of Israel have received the word from the Lord to go forward into the Jordan, to cross the river and to go into the promised land sworn to their fathers. Their leader... Joshua has heard directly from this king, from Yahweh himself. He's told him to follow the promises. He's called him to the impossible task of living up to Moses' legacy. But not really, that's not what's important. He says, I want you to go in and conquer the whole land, the promised land. And when I say conquer, you got to remember, we're not talking about an empty tract of land. We're talking about where there are cities and towns and buildings And people fill all of those things. We aren't talking about putting these people on trains either and shipping them out to a different area. We're talking about wiping out entire people groups that none of their heritage might live and propagate their line. I want us to understand and come face to face with what we're dealing with. We're talking about ethnic cleansing. That doesn't sit well with us. We know only that which is evil with ethnic cleansing is wrong. So this is hard for us to stomach, that this is real, that this is what God is actually asking them to do. This is something that we need to sit on and let let us consider it in reality that they have to face this task. 
We will deal with this in more detail in the coming weeks and months as we move into the promised land. But for now, we must understand that this God, Yahweh, is not to be trifled with. He is dead serious. Rebellion and idolatry against a holy God deserves and will result in judgment. God is calling the people of Israel to remove this people, this fierce and wicked enemy of Yahweh, the Amorites, those which are in the land of Canaan. He is calling the people of Israel to destroy this people and take the land of Canaan. Joshua has begun moving forward. He has heard the word and now he's commanded the people to prepare to go over to the Jordan. He has now secured the fidelity of the eastern tribes so that they would come with him into the land and that they would conquer Canaan together. They are unified and ready to go into this promised land. In his opening speech, God was very clear. There is only one way to prosperity or success. He said this to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all of what Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. The, the Lord tells Joshua that the law cannot, it must not depart from his lips. He tells him that he needs to meditate on it day and night, that he is to be dominated by the scriptures that he has. And if Joshua, and by extension the people of Israel, will do this, they will have success. They will have the most important key the presence of God with them. And they will be successful on their mission. Now while the people are starting to do what Joshua's told them to do, break down camp, prepare extra provisions and food to go in, saddle up their, their donkeys and get ready to go into the land, Joshua sends in reconnaissance. He takes two spies and sends them into the land. He tells them, view the land, especially Jericho. The two men cross the river. They go into Jericho. Now, if you're a spy, you mainly want to do two things. You have two objectives. Number one is to gather some sort of intelligence. For whatever reason, you're trying to understand and get that intelligence. But the second one is to do so undetected. That's the whole idea. The spies in our story believe that they can best do this by lodging in the house of a prostitute. They choose to lodge with the prostitute Rahab. Now, the business she runs is part hotel, part brothel. No joke. The business she runs, people aren't looking at each other too carefully as they walk down the hall. And yet, in this type of an area, a lot of information gets shared in so many different places of compromise. And so the spies knew that they could sneak into this hotel, not have a lot of questions asked of them, because obviously they're going there for one reason. They could gain what they needed to and, re and go ahead out without being detected. There's only one problem. Uh, someone in the city is way smarter than they are. And they are not detected. I mean, they are not undetected. They are found out almost immediately. As the two spies enter the house of Rahab, the king's spies recognize that these guys aren't from around here, and they sure look like spies, and they report it to the king of Jericho immediately, who then sends his guards back to apprehend these men, to bring them in, most likely to question them, torture them, and eventually probably kill them. As the guards ask them, they rush back to the house. They ask of, of Rahab and they say, we need to see all the guest rooms. We need to see all of your guests now. The king has sent us. 
And she complies. She says, yes, absolutely. But I, I, I don't think, I, I want to tell you something that's really important. I think I know the men that you're talking about. I didn't know they were Israelites, but they were here. But as the sun was going down and before the gates closed, they left the city and they ran out back towards the Jordan. But that being said, guys, probably if you hurried, you'd be able to catch them now. As the men then go through each, they look for room number one, nothing. Room two, room three, they look at the eating quarters. They go through the common areas. They find nothing. And they know if they lose a second on these men, if it's true that Rahab is telling the truth, it may be that they would get away without them knowing. So they listen to her and they go. They realize, remember who Rahab is. She's a prostitute. She's not one that is trying to just be really upright. She would have no problem staying out of trouble by working with the government to find these types of people out. She's probably worked in this type of a way before where she has made sure that she told them exactly where they're supposed to go. So they trust her. Immediately they rush out. They rush into the, into the wilderness here away from Jericho and the gates slam behind them. The guards again are out here now looking. The, sh- the doors are shut. Intruders cannot come in but also no one can get out. Back in Rahab's hotel, the dust settles a bit. Things quiet down. The guests begin to go back to their rooms, and the lamps get lowered. It's nighttime, and we watch as Rahab climbs the steps to her roof. As she emerges, she greets two men, two men who have been honorable, who have not taken advantage of her services, The moment these two men set foot in her establishment, she knew they were not normal. She knew something was different. She knew they were from Israel. Before the guards ever came into her house, she hid these spies. She took them to her roof. She hid them among the flax, the stalks, and she misled the guards. She sent them on a wild goose chase to be away from these spies. She literally saved their life. She delivered these two men, these two Israelite spies. Why would Rahab do this? Why would she risk her own neck for the sake of two spies? Why would she do this? She doesn't even know them. Why would she stick her neck out this way? Do you realize that she's committing treason? I mean, harboring spies is no joke. We're talking about punishment of death, most likely. Why would she do this? What did she have to gain from it? Why would she help these two Israelite spies? As as Rahab greets the men among the flax, she has their gratitude, their respect, and she has their attention. This woman has just saved their life. It is time for her to tell them what she has to say. Time for her to reveal why this thing that she did, why she would do it to explain why she would be willing to commit treason against her kingdom, why she'd be willing to stick her neck out for these people, these Jews. She makes a speech, and she says this. Whenever you hear the word Lord, remember it's not her word for God. We're talking about Yahweh. This is what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when we came out of Egypt, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. 
For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to me and deliver our lives from death. The spies are dumbfounded. Can you imagine a Gentile prostitute, a city of wickedness, not the poster child of good people within that land, the prostitute speaking of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, like this, declaring that he is God of heaven and earth. Her speech has shown the Lord that the Lord has revealed himself to her, that she believes, that she trusts, that she is willing to put her life in his hands alone. Yahweh is the only one true God in heaven and in earth. Rahab, therefore, has declared her faith in God. As the spies get ready, they respond. They, they, they can't believe this, but they hear her cry for salvation. They process it, and they say this, Yes, to the death. We will take this as a solemn word. And our solemn promise back to you, if you'll be true to your word, Rahab, and will not tell anyone else about the actions here in the city, then the Lord, Yahweh, when he gives us his land, we will deal kindly with you as you dealt with us. We will treat you and your family with the same type of committed, faithful love that you showed to us. Now the night is growing old. Things have gone on long enough. Eventually the guards who were looking for these men, they knew that they'd eventually come back. Remember, if they don't find them, they're going to come back and go straight to Rahab's house because she knew that she had seen them. They're going to search the premises and they're going to tear the place apart to see if they can find those men. There's only one problem then for these two spies. They know they need to get out of there, but the gates are shut. The sole point of entry and exit are closed. At this point we see that Rahab again acts as an agent of Yahweh, the Deliverer. If you look again, not only has she proven to do it so far, now she says again that she will help. She takes out a large rope, and since her place is built into or on top of the wall, she tosses this rope over the wall, and you can lightly hear it in the quiet of the night hit the edge of the wall. And as the men prepare to descend, she speaks to them and tells them this. Rahab instructs them to go into the hills. You've got to get away from where they're going to be searching for you. Stay there three days. They won't look any longer than that. Stay there three days, and then as soon as they come back, you may go back across the Jordan. They turn to her then before they go down, and they take a minute, and they say, if you persevere, if you will do this, you will be saved. They give a final speech and instruction for when they will come back. They assure her, that they will be true to their word. They instruct her to put a scarlet cord in her window so that the Israelite military will know which house is hers and so that she will be saved. They instruct her to gather all of her family, her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, anyone in the father's household to bring them inside of the house that is marked with the red cord for their salvation. Anyone who is inside the house marked with the scarlet cord will be saved. But anyone who goes outside of that, their blood will be on their own heads. Lastly, they remind her 
that all of this is contingent on her faithfulness to the oath that she has sworn that she would not tell of their business in Jericho. So Rahab, being offered salvation from destruction, agrees to their words. The spies climb down the rope. They run to the hills. They wait there three days. They are not found. The pursuers, having come up empty, return to the city. And so the spies cross back over the Jordan again, and they go to their leader, Joshua. Now, for a moment, can you imagine Joshua and his history, how he is feeling at this moment, waiting for these spies to come back? Remember who Joshua was, one of 12 spies who went into the land of Canaan to spy it out. He was only one of two that came back with a faithful, obedient report. The other 10 came back with unbelieving hearts saying, no way we should go in here. Joshua on the, on the, on the brink here is wondering, are we going to have another Kadesh Barnea when these spies come back with an unfaithful report of disobedience? The report, though, is simple. There were certainly details given about the land and the city and all the different things, the wall, but at the heart of their findings was the truth that Yahweh had already communicated to Joshua in chapter 1. They were the words that Rahab also had spoken to them. With joy, they told Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Joshua lets out this big breath of sigh of joyful relief. Yahweh said that this would happen. It was Yahweh who said that Canaan was the land which God would give to them. And now, not only did Rahab say it, but the spies come back and say, he has surely given us the land. But then also it was Yahweh who said, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And now the spies come back and say, the inhabitants melt away in front of us. They're not able to stand. God has faithfully reminded them from the mouths of the Canaanites that his word is true. They have heard it from Rahab, the prostitute's mouth, that God is true and that the land is being given to them. What a great story. I mean, it's exciting. There's, there's spies. There's intrigue. You've got counterintelligence. You've got a civilian, a prostitute no less, harboring these spies. You've got a daring escape. You've got the use of a red cord as a code for safety. I mean, you've got it all coming back then to Joshua and certainly giving the go-ahead into this land. But, uh, you need to be a little bit pulled back for a moment. Why is this story included? Back at the beginning, I mentioned that a good author, a prudent storyteller, doesn't just waste a good story, but rather uses it purposefully to communicate something. As we are reading through the book of Joshua, chapter 2 is actually like a big parenthesis. You do not need it to go on to chapter 3. If you go back yourself and read chapter 1 into chapter 3, forget chapter 2 for a moment, you'll realize that it continues on quite nicely. And it should cause us to ask, why was this included here? When we pick up in chapter 3, we see that we're moving forward, but it's almost like chapter 2 didn't even matter. What Joshua and the spies learn in chapter 2 doesn't really even have much bearing on what they end up doing at all. They don't give them a special port of entry. They don't tell them, oh, there's a weakness in the wall underneath this area. None of that. So why was this instance put in the second chapter of Joshua? Why would they include this? It certainly will come up again in chapter 6 
when the walls come tumbling down. But even then, when they, when they bring and they go into the city, they say, save Rahab. But the question is very small as to why they do that. So we must ask the question then, why has Joshua chosen to include chapter 2? Why is this important for us as readers? And I'll give you a very simple biblical answer, brothers and sisters. It's because Paul told the truth to Timothy. It is for our training in righteousness. It is for teaching. It is for doctrine. This is to reprove our wrong thinking. And so it's to train us then in righteousness. Now, let me get a little more specific. Why was this included? Number one, Yahweh, on the brink of destroying the land, shows mercy. And who best to receive it? In a wicked city, a wicked woman, a Gentile prostitute, he shows mercy, not only to his own people, not just to Israel, but to the nations. On the worst of all sinners, he shows his love and his mercy to this woman. The truth is, it's included in the story because we are included in this story. Do you realize this is us? Let me read chapter 2 of Ephesians 4, just a few verses. And we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, uh, prostitute, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, those that deserve to have God's punishment poured out on them because of their disobedience, like the rest of mankind. But verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Rahab is an undeserving recipient of God's divine grace and mercy. Rahab is not the first actor. She didn't reach out to a nebulous God. God came to her. God showed her who he was. It was God who revealed himself to Rahab. It was God who was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says this about himself in Exodus 34. That before the destruction of the city of Jericho, God has chosen to show his mercy and reached into this woman's life to give her faith, to deliver her from judgment. I can kind of hear her singing the Psalm of David, Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, Jericho, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. She is a direct recipient of God's mercy. And somehow, a Gentile prostitute receives the steadfast love of Yahweh. Man, what mercy. What a wonderful thing to, to, to recount and enjoy together. Rahab's, Rahab's salvation is a clear reminder that God is merciful, and specifically that his mercy extends to all nations. But that's not all. I believe that the story of Rahab, although known well by us and the larger church, was also known quite well by Israel, national Israel. It's no accident or fluke that Joshua included it here, right at the beginning, for people to read and understand. 
In the big picture, it's very important for us to see a small glimpse of the promises made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all peoples coming true here, even these nations. But in the story that we see God's mercy and salvation to Gentiles, that's not the message that necessarily Israel needs to hear. It's not something they're looking for or need at the time. What does Israel need to hear? Why is this included? Why is Rahab a big deal? Why was it included in the Hebrew Scriptures? If you remember in chapter 1, Joshua records God's speech, which highlights the necessity and grace of doing all of the law of Moses. All of his words, all of his commands, we saw this emphasis on command and authority, and people would obey the words of God. Israel understands authority. It understands law-keeping as a foundational way to succeed in their relationship with Yahweh. They know that the law should be on their lips. They should be meditating on it day and night. They should be dominated by this word of God. They know that it should be on the frontlets of their eyes. They know it's supposed to be on their hand. All that stuff from Deuteronomy 6. They understand the sweetness of this word and the importance of the law, God's words themselves. But what did Rahab have? Did she have any of that? Like, do you really think that she had Bible verses on her doorposts? Or that she was meditating on his law day and night? How in the world was she to have success then if she doesn't even know what the law is? All she has heard of is this great Yahweh. You think she knew the Hebrew Scriptures so that she meditated on them day and night? Rahab didn't have any of that stuff, none of it, but she did believe. The second thing that we learn here from chapter 2, Joshua 2 shows us the necessity and importance of faith, the necessity and importance of faith for those that are going to be in a relationship with Yahweh, a right relationship. Rahab's declaration to the Hebrew spies is astounding. I mean, she has heard of the God of Israel. She knows his name. She knows the wonderful acts that he did after they came out of Egypt, that they were being pursued, the great thing that Yahweh did by opening the Red Sea and then closing it again on these armies. She's heard about Sihon and Og and their, their, the destruction of their kingdoms. She understood that this God was to be feared, that he would have his way. But at the center of this chapter and the center of her speech Verse 11, she says this, The Lord, for the Lord, Lord being Yahweh, the one of covenant faithfulness, for the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, I know a bunch of Canaanite gods, the ones in the heavens, the one on the earth, the one on the water, the one, name it. I know all kinds of different Canaanite gods. But your God, Yahweh, He is one. Kind of going back to Deuteronomy 6. He alone is the true God. And I understand that he's the God of heaven and of earth. She is declaring her faith in the Lord. It's not just faith that presents itself in words only. Think about this. Rahab hid the spies. She distracted them and then sent them on this wild goose chase to save them. She pleads for salvation for her family, trusting that God will be merciful and able to save her. She does not report these things to the king. She keeps her oath. She provides a way of escape with the rope over the edge. And then she even instructs them how to not get caught 
to go to the mountains and wait three days. I mean, Rahab's got some real works to back up her faith. It's no wonder then that the acts of Rahab are known far greater than just in Israel in the Old Testament. We read this morning in Hebrews, the writer says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And our brother and pastor James said something even more direct. In chapter 2.25 he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Her faith is real. It is true. It is in God alone, and it results in action. We are learning here from her that she doesn't just use her lips to say the same thing as everyone else is saying. Her actions tell the truth. Her faith is real. Despite her sinful and wicked lifestyle, despite the fact that she doesn't even have the law, she trusted in the one true God, Yahweh. And Yahweh, even here in chapter 2, is making good on Joshua's name. It is Yahweh who saves. It's Yahweh who delivers. Even this Gentile prostitute in Jericho. I think the spies were dumbfounded when they heard Rahab's words, but I think the nation was also dumbfounded when they heard of the works of Rahab, that this is how she responded. The people of Israel had the same type of proud, self-justifying hearts that we struggle with here today. You can guarantee that there are pockets of people throughout Israel who were furious to find out that God granted Rahab mercy and kindness. Jonah was this type of person. Remember this? He knew that God would be kind and merciful to Nineveh. He wanted them to be destroyed. He wanted them to get what they deserved because it seemed to be just to him. And he knew that he had done all the right things. And yet, the people of Nineveh repent and believe the truth, and God saves them. The older brother in the story of the prodigal son, remember him? He is angry that his brother goes away, squanders his living, all the the money is gone with lawlessness, and then he comes back in faith to the father looking for a small position in his household. And the father with open arms welcomes him back. And the older brother is furious that his righteous deeds, his acts, the way that he did his life doesn't seem to matter at all. What about the Pharisee in Luke 7? A sinful woman comes to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair and an expensive, costly ointment. And the Pharisee pompously judges her in in his mind and says, she's definitely a sinner. And doesn't Jesus know that this woman's sinful? and judges that her actions are showing that she doesn't even deserve to be there with them at all. But Jesus responds by declaring her works. He is the one that says, no one gave me a foot bath when I came in. No one took care of me. No one kissed me a greeting. This woman doesn't stop kissing my feet and rubbing costly ointment to make sure that she gives proper honor to me. She has loved much. See, parallels with Rahab, a prostitute, who decides to act in faith and belief and trust God, trust this covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, Jesus, he forgives her. God's people need to understand that true faith is at the center of their relationship with God. Lest you think that law-keeping, 
somehow prepares you to receive the grace of God, let's get it straight. Law keeping comes out of a faith and love for God. Don't switch those two. If we do, we're works-based and we might as well be like every other religion in the world. Remember, it is Yahweh who saves. Don't think that your law-keeping, your Bible memory, even your reading plans or your works somehow will justify you and put you in a place where now God can save you. You have to bring yourself up to this point and now God can take over because the law-keeping kind of qualified us to receive salvation. No. If you are a true Christian, you know that Ephesians 2 that I read before is right. You and I were dead in trespasses and sin. We were children of wrath, just like those in Jericho. Just like Rahab, a disgusting prostitute. Unresponsive, dead. But only God, who is rich in mercy, can make us alive, giving us faith to trust Him and Him alone. Do you realize the immense mercy and grace of our God who would take us from death and proclaim life and make dead people alive? Praise be to him. Joshua 2 shows us the necessity and importance of faith in this God, declaring that he is that God. It is only by his grace and his mercy that we have anything at all. So here we are. We sit a little bit differently than where Rahab did. But the truths are all still the same. The truths never changed. Our God is still merciful. Praise Him. Let us glory in our, in our music, in our discussion with each other, in the way we proclaim Christ to the world, in the way that we live. May we proclaim the mercy of God. That's what we're called to do. There's another truth here. At the center of our relationship with God is true faith. That which trusts Him and Him alone not our law-keeping. Friend, if you're here today and you think that you've done too much bad stuff that God couldn't ever really forgive you or that you don't deserve salvation, you're right. You're hopeless. You cannot save yourself. But let me declare the gospel to you. The gospel that was declared here to Rahab even, that God is a covenant-keeping God who in his mercy has reached in and said, repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus' whole message was. His first words in Mark 1, I think, is, is repent and believe the gospel. Trust me, the one who has made a way for you to know and be reconciled to the Father. Trust me. You can't do it on your own. In fact, if you try, you are forever a child of wrath and God's destruction will come to you. There will be punishment for you. So friend, if, if you think that that's true, first, yeah, you're right. You can't save yourself. But Jesus has given himself as atonement for our sins. So I, I call you to repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, remember that your law keeping is a wonderful work of God in your heart. It is him who animates us to be able to do these things. In other words, he takes a dead person, makes them alive. Don't forget that. Glory in his name. Don't slip into the pharisaical belief that you don't deserve what the rest of the children of wrath deserve. This passage then should spur us on to worship, to Christian worship, 
and our Savior. And again, to repent and believe the gospel. And I'm not talking about the fact that we lose our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying at the heart of our relationship with him is constant repentance because we know our sinfulness and our need for him and a constant reliance, not on ourselves, but on him. That is the center of our life in Christ. That is where we find life. That is where we find the good news. So friend and brother and sister, remember that God is our God. And as Rahab said, he is the God of heaven and the God of earth. He then has come into contact and loved and given us salvation. And now we are called his blessed, redeemed children through the great mercy of the Father. Let's pray together. God, may you work in our own hearts, our wicked, self-serving, self-reliant hearts. May you call those who are blind to see. May you call those from death to life. God, we need your work to happen in us. We need you to help us to not be these arrogant, foolish Pharisees. God, we thank you for your goodness to us and we repent. We don't want to be those who somehow think that we can do enough stuff to bring ourselves to you. God, would you show us our depravity? Would you show us your great love? We worship you today together, and we're thankful that you have made us the church, called us together, that you have redeemed. We glory in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.